Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Wet Frog Studios. Visit wetfrogstudios.com pragmatic to get in touch and take advantage of a special offer of the app icon and logo design service exclusively for Pragmatic listeners. Also sponsored this week by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for a free audiobook download. We'll talk more about our sponsors during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined once again today by my guest host, Marco Arment. How are you doing, Marco? Good. How are you? Very good. Thank you for coming to the rescue with the live stream too, by the way. Anytime. Okay. So once again, we are live streaming the show, uh, <laughs> although this time via Marco, uh, and you can join in the chat room uh, as well. It's uh, now possible to see a list of topics that I'll be covering on the show in coming weeks on the website at techdistortion.com slash topics. If you're not a member, you'll be able to see the list, but if you sign up, you'll be able to vote on the existing list and suggest whatever topic you'd like covered on the show in future. I'll be locking in episodes a week or two ahead of time. People can see the topic and co-host or guest host ahead of time, so you can tune in and you'll know what to expect. Uh, the new features are live on the site right now, and uh, yes, the site's back up. Don't wait. Go check them out now. Uh, I've had quite a few really good suggestions uh, already, including DRM, RFIDs, and also a few others, so go check them out. So, um, it's great to have you back, Marco, because last time we did talk about coffee, which is awesome, of course, and uh, got a lot of great feedback, which we've already done. However, uh, I've really wanted to talk to you about uh, an issue that I've come across and that I've seen other people come across, and I know that you must have dealt with this at some point, uh, several times, in fact. And it's the idea of when you create something, being able to, at some point, let it go, as in either handing it over to someone else or simply knowing when it's time to move on. And I know that you've done this several times uh, in your career, and I guess just a bit of a recap for the people that don't know it, there was uh, your involvement with Tumblr, then there was Instapaper, which I suppose was more entirely your baby, uh, then the magazine, and uh, we should probably stop there because Overcast is still still uh, relatively new. Well, actually... Mm-hmm. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Announcement on the show, no. So, I guess the where I wanted to start is sort of set, set a little a few few little um, boundaries on this discussion. So I'm not talking about contract work clearly because contract work, that's mainly what I've done. And it's pretty clear up front when, when you create something, it's going to be handed over to a client at the end of the contract. And sometimes you're handing over the finished product. Sometimes you're handing over the, the, con- the, the product plus all of the design documentation. In the case of software, that would include the source code, all the comments, uh, all the design documentation as well. Depends on the contract. But generally in, in, in my my wheelhouse anyway in control systems engineering, we'll hand over the whole lot. And so I'm not talking about maintenance contracts necessarily or support contracts. You know, when your contractor creates something specifically and then hand it over when you're done, talking primarily about areas where you are creating a product yourself. So I guess I just want to start with how have how has your view of this changed? Has it changed? Has it evolved um, since you started out developing uh, Instapaper to where you are now? Well, I think the biggest thing is when I when I started developing Instapaper, and and for most of the time that I was working on Instapaper, I I never really knew 
actually for all the time I was working on it, uh, I never really knew what it was like to have a project that had a life that extended beyond my interest in it. Um, or, or, or to have a project that, that could continue if I stopped working on it. Um, you know, before that I had basically like little personal things, you know, mostly, you know, mostly like little, little apps I wrote for myself or little stupid things, um, that never went anywhere, even when I was working on them. And I had Tumblr, which was my full-time job. Um, but that was, you know, I was never the only person on Tumblr. Um, so that could continue without me and, and did. And, and actually did quite well without me. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's like a blog or, you know, personal like web pages and stuff, but that that's a little bit different. Like web pages kind of like, well, blogs and, you know, personal podcasts, like anything that like features you as the writer or speaker or otherwise, you know, the, the main or only creative voice, that pretty much can't continue without you. So Instapaper was kind of the first thing that I that I worked on that that really could continue without me that I, that I also owned and that I was the only person running. Um, so it was entirely new to me. Like when when I started thinking that I wanted to get out of it, um, the whole that whole concept of like, well, I could stop working on this. That uh, was an unfamiliar concept to me, which is one of the reasons why. Like I, I've I think I've said before, I probably should have sold it about a year earlier than I actually did. Um, I was at, at that point. I was already tired of working on it, and I was already getting very overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that it needed uh, to really to keep up, to to stay maintained, to stay competitive, and to keep getting better. Um, it it was really not a a one person job for the entire year before I actually sold it. Okay, so when you did actually when you did sell it, um, and I guess this is one of the things I I did. Uh, you know, based on because I've been uh, listening to you for years and reading up on uh, a, a little bit of refresher before we did this. Uh, so you have sold a majority stake to uh, Betaworks. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you do you still have a part stake in this? And you can, if you don't want to answer that, that's fine. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. So... In terms, but in terms of you actually being involved with any pro, any support for that, that ended long ago. Is that right? Yeah, I still, mean, yeah. really, almost almost as soon as I sold it. I mean, like you know, there was some time where I had to like transfer everything to them and and uh, stuff like that. But but really, like as soon as as soon as the code base and everything was in their hands, um, I was effectively done. Uh, I I still go in there for occasional meetings, just like kind of like just to. Where they, you know, they basically keep me posted on, you know, oh, here's here's what we're doing, and here's kind of where we're going next, and they will occasionally ask my opinion on something, but it's it's very rare. I mean, because they don't need to. It's it's theirs now. It's not. It's no longer mine, and uh, and so I'm I'm very hands off. You know, I I gave I basically transferred as much of my knowledge and opinions as possible up front, and then it's they've been running with it, and they've been doing a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. So it was. Um, so when you did actually hand it over, it was. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing based on what you're saying, it was more of a uh, more of a weight off your shoulders and a bit of a relief from the sounds of it. Then. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, like running it for the, for like the last year of it, it was just. It was, I was just accumulating guilt basically because mm. I knew that this service could be so much more. Uh, but you know, at that time, this was. Um, oh geez, what was this? late 2012 early 2013 whenever whenever this was um 
you know, the service obviously needed a lot of help. I was I, I was really only interested in working on the iOS app. The web app was always a mess um, because I, I just didn't care. Um, see also the current Overcast web app. <laughs> yeah, also, I was about to... I was about which to, also needs a lot of help. <laughs> I was about, yeah, because I'm looking at the sequence that you've ordered, uh, the, the sequence that you've released things, then that, that, is, that is consistent. So you've, you've put a lot of time and effort into the iOS app. And, right. And, and, and yeah. honestly, a lot of... I mean, most of that is just because I enjoy doing the iOS app more and it's more, sure. it's more interesting to me. But an- another part of that is that the you know iOS apps really have a much greater rate of return on investment of time, and sure. so if I'm if I'm trying to figure out where to devote limited time, it's almost always a better idea to put it into the iOS app than the web app. You know, web apps can be just barely good enough, just barely functional, and that's good enough for most people. And and the 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 incremental value that you get out of press or increased sales or increased user happiness out of making the web app better is so much smaller than making the iOS app better. Well, the primary window into the service, if you want to think of it as a service, I suppose, is going to be through the iOS app. So I, I understand the the reason to focus on that as well. And I mean, from a control point of view as well, you have far more control over that than you do over the web because, you know, they could be, you know, who knows what they're running, what browser they're on, what what machine they're running it on. Whereas with iOS, you've got a minimum standard that you know that is going to be met. So it's, I guess, that's also maybe that's a consideration. Totally, but but it, you know, even even beyond that, even beyond like basic web compatibility crap, um, there's just a lot more value in in both customer happiness and in you know press and possible other income. There's so much more value in just making uh, making the iOS app better. There's another thing that just occurred to me in what you've just said is that um, I thought for quite some time that you're a big proponent of PHP, and now you're telling me you'd rather write in Objective C. Is that what you're telling me? Oh yeah, no. The, <laughs> the, the, one of the reasons why I write the web app in PHP is because I don't care about it because oh. I I know PHP very very well, and I, I know how to make a web app that I won't need to care about in PHP. And by that I mean, like, like Overcast, the Overcast web service had its first downtime two days ago. Like, it wow. was literally 100% uptime until two days ago. And the only reason it wasn't two days ago is because Linode had a network issue on one of their switches. So the servers were all fine. It was just literally that you just couldn't reach them. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I don't want, you know, I've been I've been in the position before of having to babysit servers um, yeah. and and it's terrible and so I, I and I, I architected my web services ever since then to to need as little attention as possible and so I know how to do that very well in PHP I, I know very I know very well how to make a web service that will not require babysitting that will not wake me up in the middle of the night that will almost never have random downtime because something weird crashed uh, and so that's what I do and PHP is really good for that um, there's a lot of problems with the language, certainly. It's, it's not perfect. Um, and if you think your language of choice is perfect, you don't know it well enough. Uh, yeah. But, you know, certainly PHP has, has a lot more flaws than many languages, but it is still, like, it is, it is very possible to still write great code in PHP. You know, it's the language will not prevent you from writing good code. And a, quote, better language won't prevent you from writing bad code <laughs> either no, that's um, right. you know there, there's a whole lot of terrible php code out there because the language is really easy to learn 
And so yeah. a lot of re- extreme newbies who don't know how to write good code yet write PHP code. And so it, it gets a bad rap. It's, same thing happened with Visual Basic, you know, which yeah, another, yeah. another language I learned. <laughs> um, Visual Basic was also, you know, had a similar reputation of just being a terrible language. And the fact is, you know, yeah, the language had some problems, but like that's not most of the problem. Like it's the language was mostly fine, and you could write good enough code in it just fine. Like, yeah. You know, so anyway, yeah, I don't uh, want Visual I, Basic. I, I have a love hate thing for it. I, I see its utility. Um, as a companion to things like Excel and, and Word, more so Excel. Um, but, you know, and, and a few of the SCADA packages that I've used also use uh, Visual Basic as a scripting language, which is, you know, yeah, kind of handy, I guess. But uh, ultimately, you're, I, I do think it has had a bit of a bad rap as well. I, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and you know, the reality is, like, as I said, like, there, it's hard to make a return on investment on a web service, and so that's why, like, I, I just go with the language that I already know very well. Uh, I, I don't think it would be productive of me to spend a whole bunch of time learning a new web language when my interest is not there and the kind of products I make, the money's not there. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Okay, so um, I just want to sort of bring it back to where where I was, um, where, where we sort of started, which is the... Uh, when you came to doing the magazine, did you approach it differently even subtly differently uh with more of an intention that at some point you would you may hand this over to somebody else did you approach that any differently second time around second major product not really i mean with the magazine so i i launched it and and pretty soon after launch i realized oh i've made a terrible mistake (laughs) <laughs> okay pretty soon after launch i realized oh okay this actually like most of the work of running an ios magazine is not making the app good which is the part i enjoyed yeah. <laughs> it's you know it's all the editorial stuff of running a magazine mm-hmm. um getting stories you know working with the authors all the paperwork you know that's all that stuff is by far the majority of the work of running a magazine even if it happens to be an app so I realized very quickly I needed help um, because I couldn't keep doing that. And also, you know, a magazine is like it's on a fixed schedule. You know, ours was every two weeks. So it's like you have to do that every two weeks, no matter what time of year it is, no matter how busy you're, you are with your family stuff or your other work stuff. Like mm-hmm. that is a fixed schedule. And like it is relentless like that. That will not go away. And so it's like every two weeks you have to be putting out X number of stories that ha- that you have to have you know, bought and edited and dealt with and, and formatted and gotten photos for, you know, optionally. So the workload was was both su- substantial and also relentless. So I immediately hired help. I hired Glenn Fleischman, who who was the current editor. And uh, so I hired him to be the editor. And I, and I, I basically was, we made up titles for ourselves because I, you know, we didn't know. He, he basically told me, based on his knowledge of the actual magazine industry, like roughly what our, what roles we were both doing. And he made up some titles for us. I don't even remember what they were. I, I think I was like executive editor, maybe. I don't know. Whatever okay. it was, he was really the editor. And I was, I was doing like final, like yes, no on pitches. And of course mm-hmm. doing all the paperwork stuff. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, yeah. So basically, uh, what happened was a few, a few months into that arrangement, um, subscriber numbers were going down and 
the money was starting to get substantially reduced as a result. And I realized, like, you know, this, I don't think I can make this work. Like, you know, it can, it can remain, it can break even for a while, but it's going to be hard for me to make enough money on this to make it worth all this time that I'm putting into it because I could be doing something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I talked to Glenn about it and he said, you know, he was interested in putting more time into it and continuing it and, uh, you know, and trying to expand it. You know, he was interested in doing website improvements, which as you know, I wasn't. And, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So, so he was interested in expanding it. And so he said, Hey, uh, you know, can I, can I, can we work out some arrangement where I buy it from you, you know, through, through yeah. whatever, you know, whatever we can afford and agree to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, yeah, let's, let's do that. And, you know, it was a no brainer because I, I, I already wanted to be out of it. You know, like I, what, when I was first thinking about selling Instapaper, uh, I, I called my friend Brent Simmons. Uh, you probably know him from Vesper and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Oh, yeah. Net Newswire before that. Um, yeah. Because Brent has sold things before, and it's it, there aren't a lot of indie developers who have sold things who you can ask questions like this to. Um, but I, I'm fortunate enough to to be friends with Brent, so I, I called Brent and I said, "Hey, um, I, I'm thinking about selling Instapaper. You know, what do you think? Like, you know, here's here's my fears, and and here's you know here's my guilt, and and you know, what do you think?" And, and he gave me the best advice I had ever heard at the time, which was. Uh, if you don't feel like working on it anymore, you should sell it. And it's it's the best thing for everybody, for, for you and for the users, that that someone that someone takes over who wants to work on it. Because, you know, if something, like, if you don't want to work on it anymore, but you still do keep it, then it's, it's going to languish or, or you're going to, you know, you're going to, like, half-ass it. And that's no good for anybody. Hmm. And, and so, like, you know, like the... A lot of the guilt that I felt of, like, well, do I really want to like sell it? Are people going to be mad? Are they going to say I sold out? Uh, you know, are are people going to be upset that I don't own it anymore? You know, are they going to be mad at me? You know, all this stuff. Um, a lot of that kind of washed away when I when I when I talked to Brent because he he's he was so right, and mm. so I've I've applied that since then. Um, so so I I sold it into paper when I didn't want to work on it anymore. And I sold the magazine when I didn't want to work on it anymore. And if I ever sell Overcast, um, the reason will either be that somebody offered me a billion dollars, which is unlikely, <laughs> or uh, that I didn't want to work on it anymore. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, before we uh, go any further, a few more things I wanted to, uh, to talk about. We'll talk a little bit about our first sponsor, which is uh, Wet Frog Studios. Now, selling a business or an app is a lot like selling a house. You can take a huge amount of time and money redecorating and bringing the house up to scratch and modernizing it. You can take great photos and build a website showing off the house, but there's one thing, one, one missing piece that can stop buyers from ever walking through the door, and that's curb appeal. The old saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover, but frankly, most of us still do. And people do the same with business logos, app icons, and books or ebooks these days. Without some curb appeal, people don't usually take the time to check out what's inside and all of your hard work could go unnoticed. One great example of curb appeal done well is our pragmatic show art. Well, I think so. I've had lots of great feedback about it. The artwork is a result of working with Aaron over at Wet Frog Studios and I can't recommend him highly enough. 
Remember the awesome design icon that uh, Drafts had for the first couple of years? Aaron designed that. He also designed the branding for several popular popular blogs, including uh, 512pixels.net, minimalmac.com, lots and lots of other recognizable apps, businesses, and websites. So if you're looking to add some curb appeal, Aaron can help. One of the things I really enjoyed about working with Aaron is that he was able to focus in very quickly on what I needed. He took what I wanted and came back with something that was practical and met all of my requirements and required very little rework. So it was it was fantastic because it actually went so much faster than I expected it to. It was efficient and, and I got a good result. So as a special offer just for pragmatic listeners, Aaron is offering his app icon and logo design service for half the normal rate. Now that's an amazing deal to get access to a professional of Aaron's caliber and experience. There are plenty of other graphic designers out there that you can that can give you something good, but Aaron will take the time to give, make you something great. Visit wetfrogstudios.com slash pragmatic to get in touch and take advantage of this amazing deal while it lasts. Thank you once again to Wetfrog Studios for sponsoring Pragmatic. The thing that I'm the, the theme that I'm that I'm hearing a lot there, Marco, is that when it reaches a point where you're you no longer have the the drive in a specific project you're okay with, with, with bundling it up and handing it over for someone else to, to run with, which is, which is fine. Um, I guess what's, what's interesting is that I've met a lot of people, <laughs> quite a few people that have trouble letting go, uh, and you don't seem to be one of them. Well, you know, I mentioned that, that I sold Instapaper like a year too late. Um, it's because I did have trouble letting go, and, sure. and I'm, still, I'm still not amazingly good at it, but... I'm getting better over time, you know, as I as I've done it more than zero times now, uh, because I I see what happens, you know, like like people always, not always, most people overestimate their uh, their importance to a particular task. It's like like you know, some, some people almost always think like when they leave a job, like oh, this place is gonna fall apart without me, yeah. you know, and and it usually doesn't, you know, usually people pick up the slack and. Uh, you know you aren't as as irreplaceable as you as you assumed and everything just you know it's fine like <laughs> they, yeah. everyone makes do. the world keeps turning yeah exactly uh and you know the same thing happens with apps and and things you sell it's like you know it, as long as you leave it in the hands of somebody you know and and as long as they have some kind of incentive to keep it going and mm-hmm. to do well at it it'll be fine like it's no big deal and and you know you're you're not just handing it over for free. You are getting you know some some amount of money for it, even if it's small. You're getting some amount of money for it, but also you are getting the freedom of not having like of all that all the work that that was. That's no longer your problem. That's no longer on you. And so you are then free to go do something else. And and that's very valuable, especially if if there's something else you are that you want to be working on. That's very valuable. So. That I think, if if you're going to sell something, or if you're thinking about selling something, um, that should be a motivating factor. That this, like that, this won't be your problem anymore. You will get to work on something else. Now, if that's scary sounding to you, like if if you if you don't want someone else directing this thing, taking it over, bringing it in new places that maybe you necessarily wouldn't have. Um, or you know, doing things differently from how you would do it, uh, and and if you don't want to be working on something else, then you shouldn't sell it. Like then, it's not the right time. You, you know, as as soon as the idea of not working on it feels like a relief to you, 
then I think you probably should consider selling it. But of course, that will come with a loss of control. And if you're not ready to give up control, you're not ready to sell it. Yeah, and that, that's the part of the letting go that 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 uh, I've seen people struggle with is because we we get build this emotional attachment. People say that that project is quote unquote you know your baby. You know, so you pour so much time and effort and care and attention is something you become emotionally attached to it, and that makes it more difficult to let it go, and it makes it difficult to let other people mess with your baby, as it were, and. Uh, I absolutely agree with with your with the sentiment, which is you know, once letting it go is a relief, you know it's time. I think that's a, a really good way of of summarizing. And I think that ultimately, when people do start down the road on a project, they have to keep in mind that at some point, you know, a handover is going to happen inevitably. I mean, pe- people move on from jobs, like you say, but if it's a project that you're building. No project is going to last forever. Nothing can be indefinite. I mean, if you're building on a platform, the platforms could become will become obsolete. There is no platform still around today that was around 40 years ago. Well, at least I'm reasonably sure there isn't. Let me think that through. I don't think so. I'm sure someone will have follow-up and tell me that I'm wrong. But eventually, inevitably, you're going to have to hand it over at some point or it's going to have to be wrapped up. Either way, similar consequence, but still. So... Okay, one of the other things that you mentioned that I want to talk about is you said that you were concerned how people would perceive would perceive your handing over of some of this stuff and selling selling. I think you used the expression that you may be selling out. Yep. One of the things that I've been I've thought about a lot is why do people think that? You know, why? What, is it? Do you think it's the is a pervasive sort of feeling that large corporations from a corporate takeover point of view, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy, acquire this product and everyone loved this product and now I'm going to buy it, bring it into the fold and it's going to get no care or attention, fall apart and within a year or two, it'll disappear. You know, do you think that's the reason why or is, do you think there's something more to it? I'm just trying to get my head around why people would just jump to that conclusion, oh, they're selling out. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is, is that whole, like, you know, I, I had their album before they were cool kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like, like people, people want to hold on to that. But um, I don't know. I, I honestly have no idea. Well, see, I've been trying to understand it because to me, it's, I mean, about that, I had, the, I had this thing before they were famous or that before it was popular or whatever else. I mean, what value is that anyway? I mean, it's like saying first, like on the first blog post entry or something, I didn't get that either. But um yeah i think it's i think it's interesting that that people would jump to that conclusion because there's so much more to it than simply selling out and the connotation is that it's a bad thing it's like well how do you know it's a bad thing if you're going to go and do it like you said let, let's say you've lost your interest you do a half-assed job of it as a result not not because of any other reason other than you've just lost interest and it happens to everybody eventually you lose interest in what you're doing it's just you know just i think the nature of repetitive well some things, I guess, inevitably boil down to being repetitive tasks after a certain period of time. After that initial act of creation has passed and then you're into a maintenance sort of cycle, then things become more monotonous, more repetitive, more, you know, and less fun and less interesting. So if that leads you to do a half-assed job, then if you don't sell it, then you could actually be doing a disservice to it, more of a disservice to it by not selling it. So yeah, exactly. The, 
the practical conclusion is you have to have to think, well, okay, if I hang on to it, I make it worse. Selling it is the best option. And yet, hang on a minute, I'm being criticized for selling it. Like, I'm not saying that you were, but I'm just saying I've seen that happen where people say, oh, you, you, this is this person sold out of whatever. And I think that that is it's very dismissive and it doesn't really evaluate the the real reality of the situation. And yeah, anyway, I'm not sure what else to say on that one. Well, and, you know, I think, you know, there there's a lot to be said for how you do it. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to sell something, it matters a lot, you know, how you sell it, who you sell it to, uh, you know, whether you're staying or not, you know, like that, these things are all, are all very important things, but it's, you know, how honest you are with, with the customers, whether anything will change. Like if you, if you're selling something to Google because you're going to work for Google on something else, chances are your product is going to die within a, within a month. Uh, and, and so if you, if you sell some like beloved project and it's immediately shut down as part of the deal. That's a very different scenario versus if you sell something to someone else who, who's going to keep it going indefinitely. Um, so th- there's certainly that, and and you know not every not everybody can can choose options there. Sometimes people are only given one option there. But uh, yeah. but if you can choose, uh, generally speaking, it's better for you to you know obviously keep your product going for the people who want to use it. That being said, I also was. Uh, you know when when i was when i finally started started you know the process of selling instapaper um when it came time to announce the sale i was extremely nervous about what about what the reaction would be mm-hmm. i thought there would be tons of people screaming at me and and you know making me feel horrible about this because i had you know quote sold out or whatever in reality i only had one literally one person complain and, and it's a person who complains about everything, not John Syracuse, right? like a, per, a person, a, not a nice, a, a not nice person who complains about everything. Um, and literally like out of hundreds or thousands of responses I got on that, hmm. one person had a problem with it. That's a, that's a remarkable ratio. I mean, I, I could, uh, there's nothing else that I could say or tweet or blog that would have that kind of ratio <laughs> of of positivity like i could say like coffee is good and <laughs> yeah. i would get you know 20 percent of people telling me that i'm a complete idiot like th- there is yeah it's shocking like how how much positivity there was and and coming back to something that, that we said earlier um there's a lot of people like most of its paper's user base never knew who i was didn't even know it was a one-person product. Didn't care that it was a one-person product. Most of the user base didn't even realize when it was sold, mm. and many of them still haven't realized that. And and so you know, it's it's really it, my personal involvement in it really mattered a lot less than I thought. Like it was it was a lot less essential that I be the one owning and running it than I thought. Because, you know, the reality is most people just got it on the App Store or whatever, and they used it as part of their life, and they, didn't, they, they never even knew who I was, and they certainly didn't care. That's, it, that's a very good point, actually, because a lot of people simply don't, they don't see the developer at all. It doesn't matter what the product is. You know, they don't, all they see is um, the brand, um, <laughs> the, um, the name. Instapaper, you know, I say, do I use Instapaper? Yeah, that's fantastic. Do you know the developer? What's a developer? I imagine a lot of people probably <laughs> would even say that. 
Right. I mean, a lot of people probably thought that Apple made it because everyone thinks that every app is made mm. by Apple. That's true. I've heard that one. I haven't met anyone that said that to me yet, but I don't think I've asked the question. Tell, but, start uh, telling people that you make iPhone apps and see see what they say. <laughs> I made a crummy little clock once. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> it was terrible. It was so bad. Why is it everything that you look back at, no matter how proud of it you were at the time, looks terrible a year later? I don't get it. Just, because you care about getting better. That's true. I suppose that's true. <laughs> I guess you, it, you I, should, I you should be scared if you, if you look back on code you wrote five years ago and you say, man, that was genius. That's yeah, when you should be scared. Like, that's a work of art. That was. I did that five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. I, yeah, okay. You're right. I think that's that's my lim- new litmus test for if I've lost the plot. <clears throat> All right. Cool. Well, um, there's, there is actually something else I just wanted to quickly talk about, but um, it is going to be a short show today. So, that's okay. But uh, I just want to quickly talk about our second sponsor and then we'll get to the, the, the last point, which is uh, Audible. So... Audible is a leading provider of premium spoken audio information and entertainment that allows listeners to choose the audio versions of their favorite books. Now, why would you want to do this? Well, a lot of our day-to-day activities, you need your eyes on the job. So when there's a book you really want to read and you're so busy with other things, you just can't find that time. And that's where audiobooks come in. It's much easier to multitask when you're listening to music, a podcast, or an audiobook. Whether you're driving, doing housework, yard work, with Audible, you can still read your favorite book, quote-unquote, read your book, and not miss out. It's really cool. So you can buy books individually or you can sign up for the Audible Listener Program, which gives you book credits each month for a low monthly fee. You can download your audiobook to your PC or your Mac or Windows, phone, Android, Apple, iOS device and listen to it wherever you might be. Now, I'm a huge Douglas Adams fan, so I had a look to see what Audible had in the way of his books and audiobooks. And, uh, well, there's about 20 of them in their library, including all the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books and my favorites, the two Dirk Gently books, as well as uh, two Doctor Who episodes he was involved with, including the Unfinished Shader episode. That was the basis for the first Dirk Gently book, if you're into that sort of history. Anyway, the best part, though, is that some of the books are read by Douglas Adams himself. Now, I've been listening to, I've listened to Dirk Gently's List Detective Agency twice now. It's fantastic. Anyway, if you're not into uh, listening with the original author, read their own books. Sometimes they're not the, they're not the best narrator. That's fine. Um, often the, there'll be other book versions, uh, audiobooks with a different narrator. So there's lots of options to choose from. Now, Audible have got books in uh, business, classics, f- uh, fiction, history, romance, mysteries, thrillers, sci-fi, fantasy, self-development, kids, young adult, and lots more. With over 150,000 titles, that's a lot. Pretty much every genre you can think of, you're going to find what you're looking for. Now, right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic. Please make sure you use that specific URL, audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for your free audiobook. I'd like to thank Audible once again for sponsoring Pragmatic. So, the last little piece that I want to talk about, Marco, is something you sort of mentioned before briefly I want to expand on a little bit, which is it's about not just about how you sell it, but it's about who you sell it to and taking a bit of care about who specifically you sell it to. Now, with the magazine, obviously, with Glenn, it was almost a natural progression because he'd already been involved with it up until that point for several months. So, I think that sort of flowed naturally and you know, made a lot of sense. Um, with respect to, to Betaworks, I'm not sure how that sort of went down. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up uh, with, with Betaworks specifically? Yeah, sure. So... I knew Betaworks from the Tumblr days. They they were an early investor in Tumblr, and and we had and they were in New York. We we'd gone to their office a number of times for various events and stuff. And I talked to them a lot before. Um, they in fact had even 
uh, offered to buy Instapaper really early on in its lifetime. And and so I talked to them about it then, and it wasn't right for at the time, so I, so I said no at the time. But uh, I was already very, very familiar with them. They had also, uh, at the time I decided to sell this to them, they had also recently uh, acquired and turned around Dig. And so I knew I knew at that point that, uh, you know, they were getting into this kind of like, you know, web and, and iOS product space pretty aggressively. Uh, and, you know, I, I so I, I knew that they had talent. I, I already knew them. And, and so, like, I knew the people behind it. I, I knew, you know, roughly the, the people and the kind of people who would be working on it if I sold it to them. And, uh, and, and I knew that they were also not into throwing a bunch of money at something and, and having none of it work and shutting things down. Like they don't really do that. Like they, if they're going to get into something, they care about it. And and so, you know, I knew that if I had just sold it to, you know, Google or, you know, whoever, and and I didn't, I didn't have any of their offers at the time. So, you know, not not to imply that I did, that I had a lot of choices here, but I I wasn't seeking offers um, either. So if, if I had sold it to somebody else, uh, some some big company, like, you know, you have to look at okay, well, what what use does this big company have for the thing I'm selling them? Mm-hmm. And you know, part of the deal was I'm not going to work for you. You know, you are buying this thing from me, and you are taking it from me, and I'm going to go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole point of me getting out of this. <laughs> and so, uh, no free tech that, support afterwards. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> So I used to get into a lot of trouble for that, but anyway, that's oh okay. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, my bosses really didn't like it, but that's okay. <laughs> well, sorry, continue. Sorry. That's all right. So um so you know, I you know, the the big companies like I I talked to a few of the big companies earlier on in, in the lifespan and and I I always thought they were interested in buying Instapaper, but but in fact, they really weren't. They really just were trying to hire me and they wanted to do some kind of aqua hire deal uh for mm. which and and you know, like the price never worked out like the way I wanted it. Like they, like I never like if if you only want to hire somebody, then you're only going to be willing to pay a certain price. You know, what, how much is one employee worth, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. No, no, no matter what you think of them, it's 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 it isn't you know it isn't a massive amount of money. Um, that's why aqua hire deals usually don't tell you how much they sold for. By the way, because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, usually isn't very yeah. much. Um, but so like you know like the really big companies, they don't have much use for this. Like they 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 have no interest in keeping the service going and making the apps better and like they they have no interest in that it is it does not fit into their large strategies at all. Uh, so I knew that if I sold it to somebody big, it would probably be shut down you know in short order. Uh, I also knew that BetaWorks could use Instapaper. So you know not only had they just not not, not only do they. Uh, do they, do they try to be uh, fiscally responsible with all their projects? And so, like, I knew that they wouldn't just, like, oh, just make everything free and we'll wor- free and we'll worry about money later, and then in, in 12 months when it doesn't work out, we'll shut it down. Like, that isn't how they operate. Um, you know, they do things to be sustainable really from the start. And and so that that was a big a big plus. I also knew that that it was it was a similar size service than many of the other things that they that they had. Uh, I also knew that it it worked out strategically. Uh, with things like Dig, like if they can, they, if they can use Instapaper's analytics data to know, like, oh, a bunch of people are saving this one story, maybe we should look at that for Dig. Like, you know, like there there are some like, you know, cross promotional usefulness things here, or you know, maybe maybe we should promote Dig from Instapaper and vice versa. So there's 
there's all sorts of like of reasons why I knew that Betaworks would would be interested in in Instapaper, and that they would have an incentive to keep it going and and to not ruin it or shut it down. So I I realized all this one night, and I immediately just email. I, I ran down from bed. I was already in bed. I ran down from bed and uh, emailed John Borthwick at Betaworks, who who I knew. And uh, and I said, hey, uh, I want to sell this, and I think you are the right people to sell it to. And I went in there a couple days later, and we worked out a deal, and, and that was it. I mean, I didn't shop it around to anybody else uh, because I, I couldn't think of, of anyone else who, who both would be willing to buy it at that time, who, who I could convince to buy it, and who I would want to buy it. Well, you know what I like about that the most is I like the, the, the fact that it, you reached that conclusion through a series of, um, you know, they, they fit the bill. It was a good fit, as they say. And I think that's wonderful. And I, I hate the, the connotation, well, the suggestion uh, that, I don't know, company X has product Y and they just sell out to the highest bidder and that's all the end of it. I'm sure, or rather, I, I like to think that a lot of places that that build pro- build products and then sell them uh, and move on to the next one, that they go through a similar process. I like to think that, but for whatever reason, the meme seems to prevail, whereby you know this image of some guy in a suit walking up carrying two big bags of money with dollar sign on the front of each of them, and you go, you know, I'm I'm the highest bidder here. It just um I'm. I think that it's it's great that there's that le- the same level of care and attention that you put into the app is you also put into handing it over, picking who to hand it over to. I think that's wonderful. So, <clears throat> I um, just wanted to quickly mention um, before we wrap this up uh, about my issues with defect and liability periods. Um, it's sort of tangentially related. Um, because when I deliver a product uh, under a contract, there's a, a period of time in the contract called the defect and liability period or DNLP is how they tend to abbreviate it. And during the DNLP, you're supposed to rectify defects and that's fine so long as you can agree what constitutes a defect and what doesn't because, of course, they'll sneak things in and say, oh, I said it's going to be a certain color and it's not that color. It's pretty black and white. But when you're dealing with software... It's like, well, this page doesn't load quite quickly enough and you're looking at there and there's a bunch of scripts running and you're like, well, I guess I could probably do this, I could probably do that. And you get a budget of $5,000, let's say, and once your budget's gone, you're, it's gone. So if you go and spend all that money fixing a couple of slow-loading scripts on, a, on one of the SCADA pages and then you know something breaks on the other side of the plant and you need to go and replace a bunch of things that's going to cost you a lot more than that, people get angry. So there's a very big push uh, in the in the industry, in my industry anyway, that when it comes to rectifying defects, you uh, you just do enough to, to, to get by. But um, I tended to get a little bit too emotionally attached to my stuff and to the customers sometimes. And I tended to, um, you know, they'd call me up and it might even be outside the defect liability period and oh, I could just come out for like half an hour and whatever or dial in remotely and fix this. And me being young and a sucker, or I guess, I don't know. I got emotionally involved. I guess that's the problem. And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Sometimes my bosses found out they weren't impressed. So, yeah. See, you know, you were violating that old that old wisdom <clears throat> that your grandmother told you. Never mm-hmm. get emotionally attached to your controller software. Well, exactly. You know, if only I'd listen to my grandmother. Exactly right. And here I am doing that again. But anyway, no. So, um, I think ultimately... 
Uh, there wasn't too much else I wanted to add about this, but I guess the other thing that I know would I, I sort of asked you early on if you approach it differently from the point of view of um, handing over when you're done, and I guess I guess my background is slightly different because most of what I produce is going to be handed over in some shape or form, and I found that doing a lot of the like not being lazy with the code and, and commenting it well and, and structuring it well. It has all sorts of other benefits. But one of the other benefits is that when it comes time to hand over at some point in the future, it makes that transition easier. And it means that you're going to get less support calls. You're going to get less drawn into when they take it over and they're, they're working on it. You're going to get less of those, you know, oh, can you come over and just walk us through this bit or walk us through that bit? And because if it's, if it's well-structured, well-documented and everything, then it, it's less of a less of an issue when it comes time to hand over. So I guess that'd be my only other piece of advice to anyone in that situation, I guess. But uh, anyway. Well, you know, the, the fact is, like, you are not your work. Like, in general, in life, you are not your work. And whatever no. you're working on, whatever project you're working on, will end. No, you know, no matter how personal you think it is, no matter how much you think it defines your identity, um, the fact is, you know, that's all limited. And at some point, everything will end. You will move on from it. At some point, you will die. Everything ends. Like, so it, it's it's important to 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 not attach your own identity too firmly to any one work project that you do. If you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, and that's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode under podcasts. Pragmatic. And if there are any topics you want me to cover, we can suggest and vote on them at techdistortion.com slash topics once you sign up for a free account at techdistortion.com. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter and to see show announcements and other show-related stuff. Uh, I'd also like to thank my uh, guest host, uh, Marco Ahmed, for coming back on the show. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Marco? Um, Twitter, Marco Ahmed, or go to my site, marco.org. Fantastic. And uh, occasionally you you do this um, podcast as well. It was accidental, I heard about. Yep, atp.fm. That's the one. Fantastic. Uh, I'd also like to thank the two sponsors for this episode. Uh, firstly, Wet Frog Studios. Uh, if you're looking to add a professional touch to your app, product, company, remember, specifically visit this URL, wetfrogstudios.com slash pragmatic to get a great result at half the normal price. Also, like to thank Audible for sponsoring the show. Please make sure you use this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash pragmatic for your free audiobook. Check them out today. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. Thanks again, Marco. And uh, also thank you for um, letting me use your live stream. Oh, anytime. <laughs>
there's a question from Vic. Uh, if not tips to stay focused on a project. Mm, I'm not sure if that's in keeping with the uh, topic. Uh, I don't have any anyway. Okay. <laughs> no tips for focus. No, I, I think if you, if you need tips to keep you focused on a project, you don't mm. want to work on it anymore. <laughs> like it's like good, if, if you want to work on it, you don't need that. Yeah, that is, that is true. Yes. So the tip is stay enthused. No, how, how I mean, you, you can't, <laughs> like, there's nothing, there's nothing you, you can do to, to make yourself be interested in something that you're losing interest in. Uh, or like, you know, like, I mean, this is, this is like what half of Merlin's podcasts have been about. So listen to back to yeah. work. Um, mm, that's it. But like, you know, if, if, if you don't actually like working on something enough that you're motivated to do it, maybe you, maybe that's not for you. Like maybe that's not the kind of work you actually want to be doing. Like, you know, it's, it's so easy to, to say like, oh, I want, I want to write apps or I want to write a book or I want to, you know, like I want to do these, I want to be a jogger or whatever. If you hate jogging and every time, and if you need like tons of motivation to go jogging every morning, maybe you're not really into jogging. Maybe you're not really a jogger. It's fine. Like, you know, if you, if you find the work you're doing so tedious that you need tips and tricks to stay focused, that's probably not the kind of work you want to be doing. And if you have yeah. to be doing it, that's another, that's another situation. But, but if, if this is like a personal project and you're trying to find motivation or, or trying to stay focused on it, then that's a problem. So, so Vic Hudson clarified his question a little bit uh, about, mm. about needing motivation or focus. Um, he said uh, he apparently has, has multiple things he wants to work on. He said, I want to work on all of them and can't stay focused on one for any real length of time. Um, this sounds like a combination of, of my original answer, uh, which is like, I bet many of these things, uh, maybe you don't have the, maybe, maybe you aren't motivated enough to work on them. Um, but, but it's a combination of that problem. And secondarily, you're probably starting too many things. Uh, and I mean, there's, there are so many things I would love to be doing right now. Hmm. I have so many ideas I would love to be working on. Uh, that I am motivated to work on, but I have to say no to most of them because I only have a certain amount of time and 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 a certain amount of energy and and focus and attention. So the solution to that problem is not to somehow generate more time or generate more energy for yourself uh, or focus. The solution to that problem is to say no to most of those things and to only do a, a very small number of things and do them very well uh, and. That's, I mean, there, there's no other answer. Like that's, that's it. Or you, you know, build a company and have a bunch of, a bunch of divisions and have everybody work on your, the stuff for you. But <laughs> then, then it's a very different job um, yeah. and requires quite a bit of capital. So, so, you know, if, if you, if, if what you're doing is not fitting into the amount of time you have, then you need to reduce the number of things you're doing. Absolutely agree with everything you just said. And what I would suggest, Vic, is uh, we, ha we have sort of talked about this a little bit previously, but it, it's more about, to, in my mind, it's it's great to have ideas. That's that's fantastic. Have lots and lots of ideas. That That's great. But you need to pick the leading idea that you want to run with, the one that you want to see through to fruition the most and and keep that end in mind. That is your goal. If other if other elements, other ideas you have can be funneled towards that same end goal, great, fantastic. But you are inevitably going to have to say no to a whole bunch of them that simply aren't in alignment with that direction. I mean, 
that would be my suggestion. You, you have to pick a winner. And I know that that's not easy, but you, you have to. And that's why choosing the one you're most passionate about is the best answer because that will give you the most drive and therefore the best chance for success, where success is measured by completion. I'll put it that way. Yeah, I mean, like, the, I mean, there are so many, like, I would love to rewrite my blogging engine again. I would love to make a program to replace Logic as a podcast editor. Um, yeah. these, these a lot are, of people would love that. Yeah, <laughs> almost everybody who uses Logic to edit podcasts would love that. Pretty um, much. You know, I, I would love to uh, to make uh, effectively like the Tumblr of podcast hosting, and and you know, make it really easy to host podcast websites. Like there, there are so many of these things that I would love to do. Uh, that that I I would love. To, I I have motivation to work on them. But if I started working on them, uh, it would it would become a problem because I would have too many things that I'm juggling. Yeah, uh, there's only one Marco. Yeah, and I'm not even that good of a worker. So I, you know, I, I'm not even that efficient with my time, and I'm, I'm not even very disciplined. So I have to, I have to consider like not only how much time I have, but the kind of worker I actually am, the kind of person I actually am, and I I know that whatever I choose to do, there is no way it is getting eight hours of work every weekday like that is not happening because mm. that's just i'm not i'm not that focused in general like i have my blog and my podcast and i like to dick around on my computer and read the internet and stuff so like i know that you know and i also have a family and i have real life distractions and and so i i'm very aware that i'm not going to be working eight hours a day on everything and uh, and so I, I have to choose my work accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Depending on who you talk to, this is the distraction. But um, <laughs> that's in true. what we do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it depends on how you want to think about it, I guess. But because um, yeah, I've, I've had I've gone through the same discussion with um, with my wife, and it, it's interesting because and I end up in a similar sort of a. It's a balance, and yeah, you got to be very careful. There's only there's only 24 hours in a day. You can't manufacture more time, so you got to be smart about how you do it. Am, am I the only person whose mind is blown by how many projects underscore David Smith actually has running? I mean, he makes all of us look bad. I mean, that my guy. brain melts <laughs> when I look at this. I'm like, how can you do all this at once? Man's a genius. But anyhow, yeah, he. I don't know how he does it. I I, I think the answer is that he is a really good worker like he he is very diligent and very structured with his time like that's mm. uh, i'm pretty sure that's how he does it because yeah. and and he yeah. also he also is very good at um at allocating his time i mean you, you should talk to him about this but but you know mm-hmm. he he said on a number of a number of occasions like his, his projects basically like earn his attention by how much interest there is how much they bring in like mm. and and he he splits his time between things very well whereas i i can't do that and i'm also not as disciplined as he is with overall you know work time and so uh so i you know i i choose accordingly and and to make this kind of decision for yourself you you have to be pretty self-aware to to know what your own limitations are and a lot of people just it's hard to face that it's it's hard to know that Mm. and it's hard to admit that maybe you're not the most efficient worker in the world yeah, it's about being honest. And I, I've talked about this only a couple of episodes ago about being honest about how much time you actually do have and, and how you budget your time and, and how, you, yeah. how, how you figure out if you are even in a position to take on a new project of any kind. 
And it's the being honest bit that people struggle with. It's so easy for me to say, be honest, Marco, but it's like, that, <laughs> I can't make someone be honest with themselves about themselves. That's something that has to come from inside that person. And, and I can't make someone be honest with themselves. Exactly. So, and people have said that to me in the past. And I'm like, I am being honest with myself. Six months later, I think back, oh, I really wasn't being honest with myself back six months ago. But yeah, it's a tough thing. It's easy to say and it's hard to do.